Hello, Catherine. Hey, Leslie, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Awesome. It's good, good to see you here. Yeah, it's good to see you too. The miracle of technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I'm speaking today with Catherine Cronus, and I'm really happy to be able to have a conversation with you. We talked about some things a couple of months ago when we got a chance to see each other in New York. And um, I I really enjoyed the conversations and I, I, I thought that it was interesting to hear how you got involved in, in this kind of field that we're, I don't know what you want to call it, what we're doing here, these kind of conversations about culture and, and the direction that our, our culture is going. So um, would you start by introducing yourself a little bit and tell a little bit about how you got to be in the position you're in now? Sure. My name is Catherine Cronus and I'm a mom with two children who are now in high school. But at the time, um, I, I've been sort of noticing that there were some cultural changes happening, cultural shift happening um, in the larger culture, but also in education itself. And I was having trouble putting my finger on what the problem was, but I could see that there was these currents and these trends, uh, particularly um, around the anti the notion of anti-bullying. And I, I was concerned about them because I thought that they were attacked like a approaching the problem of, of student safety and well-being from um, the wrong angle. And it wasn't until uh, June of 2020, so right on the heels of George Floyd, um, when I, you know, very, very shortly after, where all of a sudden I put the dots, connected the dots together and realized this wasn't just some sort of coincidence. And this, some of the stuff that, that, that they're trying to, um, um, activists were trying to advocate for was not a coincidence. Like these are coming from specific ideologies uh, that have been in the education system, um, teachers, colleges, universities uh, for years. And now it, they have come as particularly after, you know, um, George Floyd, uh, June of 2020, and also um, pandemic, uh, they were just basically unleashed and uh, were pushed through at, at, at a greater pace. And um, I think that it, uh, it was a little bit, it was actually a lot alarming to, to, to see this happen. So from that point, I started to educate myself as much as possible and reading everything about um, the various um, ideologies and perspectives um, and and then I started to look for other parents in my um, um, school board. And I did immediately find a, a group of parents or, or a, like um, a number of families that could see that these cultural trends were very damaging. And these are not the sort of things that we want students to be exposed to, um, not the healthiest solutions. And so I started, but I, but I wasn't able to really, um, you know, it, it was during the pandemic, there was a lot of lockdowns. So I wasn't able to meet people in person. And it was very contentious to try to talk about these issues over social media, like getting shut down on Facebook or, you know, you just, you, you, you couldn't do it. So uh, I decided to um, actually what happened was Helen Pluckrose, 
she had written the book Cynical Theories with James Lindsay, and she opened up a support group in the UK called Counterweight. And I got into Counterweight onto their, they had a Discord server. And as soon as I got onto that Discord server, I met a teacher from Toronto. And um, we sort of made fast friends. And this teacher was telling me about what was happening inside the school system. So I could see only what was available on websites, for example, what the school was telling us that was happening. But I was hearing it now firsthand from a teacher inside about the sort of things, the sort of workshops, the sort of how these ideologies were being um, brought into the schools without, very often without parental knowledge or understanding what um, ideologies, what were the basis for some of this, um, these, these sort of lessons and workshops. And I became, again, increasingly alarmed. So from that point on, and with her help, um, I, I started to organize parents and educators across Canada. And so that's what I've been doing ever since, um, finding other people, uh, um, educators who have been um, fired, educators who have been disciplined, educators that feel like they're walking on eggshells because they cannot speak freely about their concerns. Um, I'm also, and, and, and of course I'm, I'm uh, connecting with many parents and school boards across the country. Uh, we have, we have um, people in, in, in British Columbia and Ontario are probably the two main ones, but there's a growing cohort of parents and educators in Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia. So, I mean, then that's what I've been doing in a nutshell. So it sounds like you started noticing it and it was a little bit more subtle. Like you just sensed that something wasn't right. This anti-bullying thing seems a little weird. But then as you started to dig deeper, you discovered that it was more concerning than you even realized going into it. And then um, it, it's really it's really great to hear how you kind of came from having that realization to to making connections with other people and then to broadening those connections further and further. And I think that that sense of isolation that people have when they're, when they're kind of, they feel alone in their concerns, they feel like they're sort of the, the, the outlier because everybody else is going along with this is really dispelled by those connections that you're helping to form. So mm -hmm. um, it, it sounds like it's grown to quite a big network at this point. Uh, yes, we're, we are, um, I, I actually, we're, I consider us cause we're very under underground and sort of growing organically, mm -hmm. um, and making those sort of personal connections. Um, I, I would say that the people that are part of the network are very knowledgeable on these issues. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, you know, it's been people like Christopher Rufo, for example, who I found inspiring because it was because of him that I went to a Zoom meeting we had through like the Manhattan Institute where he was saying like, look, parents, you need to get together. You need to like, you can't just try to fight this on your own. You need to find other parents to form small parent groups. And it doesn't even have to be that many parent groups. You can just have like five, 10 people as part of the group um, and, and other people you know, I've, I've had inspiration from other people along the way, including Jody Shaw, who was, I was going to her early on um, with her locals um, meetings. And she was, you know, basically just offering me like moral support and helping me connect with some other people to, so that I could get some more information and, um, and, and from there be able to make more connections with people. So I have been, um, 
I'm not sure, like my whole life I've been very introverted and not necessarily the kind of person that's um, out making, you know, hundreds of friends everywhere. But with this issue, I found it so important that I'm compelled to just find the other people that feel the same. So it's pushing you outside of your comfort zone because of your concern and your passion for what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I know um, you're connected with Chanel Fall, who have, I, I'm, I've spoken with her before. She's wonderful. And I really am inspired by her stance on these things as well. She takes a really strong stance and very principled. Yes. Well, Chanel was actually one of the first people that I connected with back in, it would have been like June of 2021. And this was just on the heels of her, um, you know, if you, if people listening know her story, uh, she was um, subjected to um, basically punishment for posting on Facebook, uh, her views about critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And so she was, when she came into to my group, she was she was just like, oh my gosh, this just happened and this is what's going on. And we were all like completely you know, shocked and appalled. Um, so yeah, we're, uh, you know, supporting people like her was very much part of my objective. It's similar to what we do with solid ground, that connecting of people and find, finding moral support in each other, being able to talk with each other about these things as they happen is so vital, I think and really encouraging. Right, and I'm in, I'm in Canada, I'm in Hamilton, uh, Ontario. And for us to be pushing back on these issues, like I'm coming at it from the education perspective, you're coming at it from the psychotherapy perspective. But for both of us, this is fairly new in terms of these professions facing any sort of real collective, um, pushback from parents um, and they don't like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what um, what uh, I was gonna say is that we in Canada specifically, because Canadians are a little different than Americans in terms of how you know we're perceived as very agreeable and you know not pushing and we are definitely further left in this country um, than than um, in, in the in the United States. Um, but because we're at such a new stage in the movement, it's important for people to make connections and over time develop those relationships with other people so that you can um, trust other people, but also learn the strengths and weaknesses of the people that you want to sort of um, work with in terms of creating new organizations or parent groups or whatever whatever it is that you, you want to advocate for. And so, and I, and I, I think initially when I came in, initially in, I think it was around February that I got into counterweight, Helen Pluckrose's counterweight. And then, you know, March, I was like, okay, I'm going to develop this group. And then I was thinking, okay, I'm just going to, people are going to come and we're all going to work together and, and that's it. We're, we're, we're just going to share um, resources and strategies and we're, we're all going to be one happy team. And it, and I was, I think for the first year I was like beating my head against like the wall because it's like, it just doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. It, it, it does take a, a lot more time. You have to have a lot more patience, but I do see that now um, I'm seeing the fruits of all that work. And, mm -hmm. and I'm finding that people now I'm able to put people together with other people 
who they're going to work well together with to create new organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point about the, the slow process of community building and that it is kind of a delicate thing. It's not, it's not as simple as you'd hope, but laying the groundwork seems very important. And you've talked yeah. about, you talked about some of the legal things that have been happening in Canada recently. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that, if you don't mind giving the backdrop for what's going on. Sure. So in Ontario, there was a recent Law Society of Ontario uh, election. This is an election that happens every four years. Um, and there's, I think, 42 benchers, so 42 lawyers that are basically would form the board of the Law Society. And to, in 2019, so four years ago, um, the Law Society had um, had proposed a requirement for all lawyers to sign a statement of principles. And the statement of principles was basically, in order to practice law, you'd have to basically bend the knee to critical race theory and equity and diversity, equity and inclusion and all those sort mm -hmm. of um, that ideology mm -hmm. and that was met with some resistance and there was an election held and the resistors you know managed to occupy the majority of the seats and the stop the statement of principles was laid to rest mm -hmm. this time around um this election it came down to the the more critical social justice or woke sort of ventures versus the the not woke full stop ventures more classically liberal or liberal minded and and what happened was um you know long story short is the woke ventures won oh wow clean sweep wow clean sweep so they so now the in order to practice you have to sign on to this ideology so not at the moment, because okay. they swore that they weren't going to bring back the statement of principles, but clearly these, this is the, of the, of the benchers that won, this ideology is their underlining guiding principles. Mm -hmm. So over time, we can see that um, the concern is that, that um, it's going to reduce access for justice for average citizens, because if you if you are going to be required to um, abide by these DEI principles, then you know you may not be able to take certain cases to court. Like I mean, if you have a if you have somebody who's a client who is speaking up, and and I'll just 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 to backtrack for one second in Ontario right now as we speak, we have the Human Rights um, uh, Commission of Ontario. And we have the human rights code and under that code right now white people are not protected and this is explicitly stated that we are not uh, protected under the code so if for example and again i'm not saying this would happen today but this could happen um, in the foreseeable future somebody who wanted to stand up for their uh actually there was a case where somebody was was claiming discrimination based on their skin color based on them being white saying that they couldn't have access to um, I believe it was a school program because their son was white and it was only open to black black students, but also, you know, teachers, educators, anybody, uh, any other person in Ontario who would want to speak up against discrimination, if they don't fit into the equity deserving groups, mm -hmm. then they may not be able to get representation. Mm. 
So there, if if the courts and ju if justice goes woke, then there's not equal justice anymore. It's a very slanted sort of thing. Or the potentially justice so. Right. Justice is supposed to be blind. It's supposed to be impartial. And as you know, with this ideology, it's specifically not yeah. um, impartial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's terrifying and it, for people who are going to want to bring challenges forward to, to stop this stuff. I mean, if every, it's, it really has broad implications. It has broad implications. And we've already seen what's happened to the BC Law Society. So British Columbia Law Society already fell to like basically taken over um by woke activists and now they're just pushing all the typical climate change and mental health and you know indigenous um issues instead of being lawyers they mm -hmm. need to be a neutral body and they're not well they've become activists that's instead. right yeah mm -hmm. it seems like the land acknowledgement thing is a really big deal in canada is that is my perception on that correct? It is. It happens every school. So um, I can only speak what I'm aware of in the school system. But here uh, we have in my child's school, they play O Canada. There's a land acknowledgement and they play O Canada. Um, before every school like council meeting, we do a, a like a land acknowledgement. Uh, board meetings, land acknowledgements. What does that sound like? Um, it sounds like a prayer okay. basically, which is what it is. It's, yeah. it's almost like, it's almost like saying, saying grace before a meal, right? Mm -hmm. Except what they're saying is they're saying that this land is not, we don't, this is not our land. We're boring, you know, we're boring land and we're thanking, we're thanking them for being on this land essentially. Have okay. you not, do you not have land acknowledgements where you are? No, no. no? I'm I mean, surprised. well, there might be some places where they happen. And, uh, but I, I haven't been exposed to that personally. Yeah, it we, seems... I mean, I remember even maybe even like five years ago, going to the art gallery of Hamilton downtown, just for some sort of seminar or some thing. And they had a lot land acknowledgements before this like art exhi exhibit or whatever. Um, so yeah, we've had them for a long time. It sounds like a really, um, it, like it's a guilt inducing thing. Like it's to tell people that your presence is not legitimate. And if you keep telling people that constantly, then you, you kind of wipe out a person's connection to their, you, you wipe out somebody's roots. It's destabilizing. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. it's just an interesting idea. I, I haven't really talked about this or thought about it very much because it's just not something I've seen very much, but it just, it seems like it's a big deal in Canada. It is. And it's also, it's also, um, infringement of, on on people's time and again it's imposed without consent and i know you know the kids at school are could care like they would be prefer if they didn't have to go through that but it's just another like little routine thing to them at this point yeah but you know they do it with like rolling their eyes oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well you know something um you you mentioned that you'd had a conversation around the pronoun issue and I was interested in hearing that from you because I just I've been thinking about this lately as well. I've thought about it for a long time, actually. My my first exposure to this euphemistic pronoun language that we do was in um, an actually a group interview for the graduate school that I ended up going to, 
and they went around and asked everybody to give their pronouns. And I, I think I, I must've heard of this before that I must've kind of, it must've been on my radar because I knew what they meant, what they were asking, Mm -hmm. but I had never been presented with that, um, request before. And so that very first time I just, I did say, I stated she, her, because I'm in a, I'm being interviewed as a student and here, everybody else in the circle is doing it. And I'm kind of on, on the spot and it felt weird, but I, I went along with it, but I really didn't like it. And I really didn't like that. I went along with it. Mm-hmm. And I, it took me quite some time to chew on it, to figure out what exactly I thought the major problems with it were. I thought it was unhealthy. It seemed like a strange thing for a psychology program to be demanding of its students because it seemed so patently psychologically unhealthy to me to be mm-hmm. um, speaking in such euphemistic terms. I mean, basically it's a euphemism for saying, I can't tell what you what your gender or sex is. Will you please tell me what you want me to think it is? Mm-hmm. And, and so to do that to all of these people who are not necessarily presenting themselves androgynously it seemed very strange anyway. So I took some time with it. I've thought about it. I have some thoughts on it. I did a video on it yesterday and, uh, you were mentioning that you've, you've got, um, some thoughts on it as well. I'd love to hear. Yeah, actually, this is a topic that has occupied a lot of my headspace the past few weeks. And I listened to your podcast yesterday that, um, that you discussed it. And I thought it was really, really well done. And I agreed with you on many points. I think there's some areas that need some clarity, Mm -hmm. but uh, I did a podcast with Chanel Fall and Julia Malott in Ottawa, I don't know, a month ago. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a casual conversation. And then when it went online, it it, it, um, ruffled some feathers, ruffled some feathers in people in the, I guess, the gender critical feminist community. Um, because Chanel and I both took the stand that we were happy to call our friend Julia, who is a trans woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were fine calling her and referring to her as a she or a mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this was uh, and this was, I guess, her- heretic for some people in the community. Mm-hmm. And um, and and here's why we we're okay with it though, because Julia Malott. Uh, is a person who understands free speech and understands these issues and is not a gender ideologue, mm-hmm. um, has had gender dysphoria, has had uh, transition, uh, full surgery, mm-hmm. uh, but has no expectations that people people's world revolve around her. Mm-hmm. So there was no point that she requested or we never even had the discussion with her prior to this, first of all, this podcast, which wasn't the first time I had met her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Julia is actually speaking, she's an, uh, speaking openly about uh, about these issues at board meetings. So she's speaking up for our side of the issue, which is parental rights and free speech. So my, my position was on a personal level, I'm okay to call her her because it makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a distinction though between institutions or state imposition and requiring people to. So your situation, when you're at some sort of psychotherapy event or conference or even like a group therapy sort of session thing, for them to have requirements, uh, you know, to um, that whole pronoun exchange, Mm -hmm. 
I feel that that falls into sort of the compelled speech um, um, area. And I think that that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And there could be a case where on a personal level, there is a trans woman and I don't know this person, perhaps I don't perceive them as being all that feminine. Mm-hmm. And I would call that person a he and not a she. Mm-hmm. Um, I am absolutely against though, the the requirement in, and again, I'm coming from an education background, but uh, uh, you know, perspective rather, is I'm absolutely against like having these pronoun use and pronoun rituals in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel that that is compelled speech on our students. And I'm, I'm not a fan of the pronouns in, and all of my, um, my ch- children's teachers, for mm-hmm. the most part, I think they put the she, her, he, him as mm-hmm. their email signatures. Mm-hmm. And I do not think that that should be done in schools either. Mm-hmm. Um, I would stand for those individual teachers deciding to use the pronoun, pronouns or putting them in their um, personal um, correspondence, if that makes them feel okay. But I think in an institutional setting, uh, I, I think that that is um, uh, creating a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that that's a really good distinction to draw the difference between being compelled to do something and doing something based on what makes sense for you and, and choice. And I, uh, I agree. And when I, um, when I think about the issue, I, I do think about it in two parts. It's like, are, am I being asked to participate in this by being forced to give pronouns for myself? That's a different issue entirely to being requested by someone to think of them a certain way. And so the if someone says my pronouns are, and they offer you pronouns that don't match what their appearance looks like, it's just, it's just code for saying, please perceive me as. And so I do think that that's a gray area. There are going to be a lot of times where I'm going to go along with what that person wants, because it's going to make sense. It's going to make mm-hmm. sense based on the context of our relationship or on the way that the person's earnestly trying to present themselves or whatever it is. It's a respect and, um, it's, it's just a matter of respect and, and mutual engagement, really. Mm-hmm. But it's an entirely different thing if you are being forced by an organization or an institution to comply or else. Mm-hmm. And there's one thing, though, I remember when I was listening to your podcast yesterday, uh, one, one word that stuck out with me is that you said that when I when we call somebody like who's clearly like biologically male and we refer to them as a she, mm-hmm. um, regardless of their presentation, I'm thinking this is your intent. I'm not sure you, you'll have to clarify that, that, that was lo- that was a lie that, mm-hmm. that it was like, um, we were not in the, in those moments that were lying. Mm-hmm. And I think that I really, I really need to push back on this term lie mm-hmm. because and this was this involved a lot of the discussions that I was having post doing that initial podcast with Julia and Chanel, is that I was being called deceptive because mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't stating the the true fact the true mm-hmm. fact that Julia is a man. Mm-hmm. First of all, I just want to like uh, clarify my feelings around that. Um, there's at no point that Julia Malat does not consider herself understand herself to be truly biologically male mm-hmm. she is not i mean i i think that uh it's been a question for her and and there's you know there's feelings there but at the end of the day 
in our podcast, she says, no, trans women are men. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree, obviously. And so when I call, when I, but, but when I'm referring to her as a she, it does not necessarily mean I'm referring to her biological sex. Mm-hmm. And therefore I'm not lying because mm-hmm. she actually does refer to um, feminine femininity. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so there are people that draw these hard lines and say like, okay, there is only biological sex and there's no gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, well, there is biological sex, but there is also something that we have come to know as being more feminine or more masculine, right? Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. right? And so when some when there's a trans um, woman presenting as mainly female, and in Julia's case, again, breasts, you know, mm-hmm. you know, feminine appearance, then for me, when I say she, I'm referring to the feminine appearance versus mm-hmm. the biological sex. And therefore, I'm, I don't feel like I'm lying. And in fact, I can hold two mm-hmm. ideas at the same time that that person is a biological male and that but and and that person is a is a she. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate your perspective on that. And that's uh, it's good to add nuance to the discussion. And I don't disagree. Um, I I want to think about that for a little while though, because I'm not really sure I have a, uh, a really firm opinion on, on that. I, I think that I'm similar to you in that if someone is really appearing feminine, I'm going to call them. She, I just, I mean, like I think of Blair white, for instance, that's just mm-hmm. the first person that comes to mind. I call her. She, I, I would not, I would not call her. He, that would feel wrong. And yet when I say she, there's something in that that feels a little weighted. There is definitely like internally an acknowledgement for me that I'm doing a little bit of a linguistic dance because it's not, uh, yeah, this, and this is just like so off the cuff. So I don't really, I don't know. I have to chew on this for a while, but it's, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking with someone who fits that description that you're not talking to a man per se anymore, but you're also not exactly talking to a woman either. You're talking to someone who occupies a different space. And, and, and when I, I spoke bluntly yesterday for the sake of um, expedience and simplicity. Mm -hmm. And I do think that if you're going to categorize an untruth as a lie, then it falls into a lie because it's, I would put it in that category, but that is a blunt way to put it, I would say, because it is a, it's a bending of of truth. It's, it's, it's not full stop truth. It's something else. And I would say that the person who has now, maybe this isn't the right way to describe this. I said, sometimes you're going to want to prioritize other values over honesty in a relationship. And Mm -hmm. I do think that we do. Sometimes we want to prioritize other values over honesty. And in this case, this is an individual that you have respect for as another person in the world. And you can see that the effort that they've put into this and the life that they are living creates, um, creates one kind of presentation. And it's been a true investment of self into this, a a true long and introspective and earnest process for this person. And if you're going to say to them, that's invalid, then that's really disrespectful. And in this case, respect trumps honesty. 
is what I would say. Uh, but again, this is kind of off the cuff. So I'll have to really think about, about this because I like the, the way that you frame it. I think that it adds something important to the picture. Well, I mean, this is like, uh, this is a opening up a can of worms with this conversation, right? Yeah, so yeah. I appreciate that it's going to be something that you'll come back to. And I keep coming back to it and I keep mm -hmm. refining my thinking on it. Because mm -hmm. again, when we first had the conversation a month ago, I, I was just sort of, again, off the cuff. Mm -hmm. And then we got a lot of um, ire on Twitter or whatever and social media. And then I, but, but, but that was okay because it caused, it, it forced me to sort of like really go deeply and sort of analyze my thinking on it. Mm -hmm. Now, what I would say is perhaps for you, mm -hmm. um, again, coming down to treating individuals as individuals, your feeling on that comes from a place of respect, for example. And, mm -hmm. and, and that would trump, for example, trying to state what you think is biologically mm -hmm. true. Um, I would say for my, myself, it's like, which causes more cognitive dissonance for me mm -hmm. called to call my friend a she or to call my friend a he. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you cause more discomfort or dissonance to call that, that person a he as mm -hmm. it would be for Blair White. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now mm -hmm. there could be other people that it causes more dissonance for me to call them a she rather than a he. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and again, that's on an individual basis. And the thing about it is, is that on an individual basis, I don't have to treat everybody the same way. Mm -hmm. I can treat, I can treat one person one way and one person another way. And that is freedom. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's like a completely different thing where we have what the state, you know, the state is supposed to treat everybody the same. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not supposed to discriminate. And the problem with the pronouns is, is um, when when the state is even when you're even imposed that question what are your pronouns or when a person says you know my pronouns are they them you must call me this mm -hmm. that is automatically an imposition that should not be pushed pushed from the state onto like an individual mm -hmm. and in canada what we have we have we have laws uh bill c16 mm -hmm. which basically um, is a compelled speech law that they somebody not respecting somebody's pronouns could be charged with some sort of hate speech. Um, and in the schools, what we're seeing is that teachers, teachers that are coming from variety of religious backgrounds and are against the idea of gender ideology, uh, don't believe in it and don't believe in gender necessarily, they're being forced to call students. And by the way, students that parents are not even aware that this is happening in the classroom they're being forced to call students by the opposite sex pronouns mm -hmm. and it's going against them mm -hmm. and so you remember how you said in your in your podcast yesterday like if you can avoid compelled speech if you can avoid doing that do mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. i'm with you there i would love the teachers to stop that practice unfortunately what's happening is i'm aware of teachers in in ontario here who have been fired uh for uh, rejecting use, using opposite sex pronouns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really like how you, you pulled that from the interpersonal to the individual and in, with your discussion on cognitive dissonance. And I would say that that is a helpful framework because it, it, um, in that situation where you're trying to decide, or I guess when, when you're deciding how you're going to address somebody or talk about them, say, use your friend, Julia, or we could talk about Blair you're talking about somebody um, 
who is is in between two spaces really they're not fitting perfectly male and they're not fitting perfectly female but they're fitting more close to the female so you're going to go with she i would say that there's still some cognitive dissonance around that for me i would say that i would have much more calling them he calling Mm -hmm. either one of those those people he than she Mm-hmm. But I would say that that's kind of the, that's a good description. That's a good way to look at it because I'd say that there still is some, and I think, um, I think it's such an interesting point that you're making, but yes, when it comes down to drawing a hard line, the state compelling this kind of speech and threatening people with punishment, if they don't go along with it is, is incredibly alarming. And I've seen a trend in young people where they, they just use these pronouns just to use them. So they're still presenting very, um, outwardly feminine, but using he, him pronouns and, and such, you know, so as a teacher, what, what are you to do at that point? It looks like it's just a control mechanism on the part of the kid. You know, it doesn't look like it's an earnest gender dysphoric, um, you know, mental or, or medical condition that you're needing to respect. It looks like something else looks like some sort of social trend. And that's a big topic that I guess, we could really dive into, but um, it'd be pretty meaty. Yeah, and I mean, you know, just getting back to the teachers, uh, what's happening here in Ontario, The I've talked to teachers where they've had to, uh, and I'm sure it's happening where you are as well, but one day the child is, you know, certain pronouns, the next mm-hmm. day they're different pronouns. It's mm-hmm. like every day it's different and the teacher has to go along with it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's wrong on many levels, but, you know, you, I think you brought up this idea of pleasing, um, I think in your, um, when you discussed the issue with pronouns yesterday. And um, that's the other thing that I, I sort of balk at where, where I was being accused of because I was referring to my friend as she, that I was therefore people pleasing Mm. and, um, and that I shouldn't people please. And that you know as a result this is why we're in the mess that we're in all these people just going along with it and there's been a slippery slope Mm -hmm. and the slippery slope is the fact that people on an individual basis referring to their friends as she is her has opened the door to all of a sudden um trans rights activists taking this huge power grab Mm -hmm. and i reject that and i also reject the fact that i'm people pleasing when i'm when i'm doing it because maybe for yourself, mm-hmm. when you think of it, you're trying to respect the individual. But I, I analyze it in my head and analyze my head and I'm kind of past the port point of people pleasing mm-hmm. in my life. And, and as a result, um, I'm not going to allow my speech to be compelled, uh, you know, for the most part. Um, for me, again, it came down to this just made more sense. It was, it was easier, right? Yeah, yeah. But but what the people that were accusing me of people pleasing didn't see or didn't understand or don't understand is that you think that I'm pleasing my friend, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I'm clearly not pleasing you. Mm-hmm. So am I a people pleaser in that case? Right. Yeah. That's a good point. No, I don't think I said pleasing. Cause I don't think of it that way. I don't, maybe that was in one of the comments under the video, but I, I don't think that I would have said that. Cause that's not my, that's not my stance on it. I don't believe that that's true. In fact, I, I kind of tried to lay out why um, I think that the issue that I was raising, which is 
how to respond when you are being asked to give your pronouns is the issue that I wanted to discuss. And in the very beginning, I sort of delineated, here's this issue. And here's the other issue of how you're going to deal with somebody else's pronouns. And that's why for the giving your own, if you're not somebody who really needs to, feels the need to, um, to say, I'm not, I want you to think of me different than how you might see me. And if that's, if that's what you're doing, and I don't condemn that either at all. I mean, if you are somebody who is gender dysphoric or presents androgynously, and you want to make sure people are seeing you the way that you, that aligns with yourself, it makes sense to make that request of them. And if you want to use a euphemism to do it, go for it. And I'm, I don't condemn that. That's just a decision on an individual basis, but that's where the decision belongs is on the individual basis. And so if you're confronted by that in your life, by a person who is making that kind of request that, that causes you some cognitive dissonance, then you, that's why I put a maybe by that. That's a maybe, maybe you decide for yourself, how are you going to deal with that? And that could be contingent on all kinds of things, which we could sit here and like give examples and scenarios and anecdotes all day long where you would go along with it or where you wouldn't go along with it or whatever. But the issue for me is the compulsion, really. That's the, the, uh, the fact that in like, so my, the main place I came across this was in this graduate program, but it's happening. Like I live near Seattle. So it happens in Seattle public schools where teachers are being forced to put their pronouns after their, their signature. And you just see it all over the place in signatures and stuff. And I've talked with people who are being asked to do this and don't want to do it. And that those are the people I want to talk to. How do we, how do we confront this? Is it harmless to go along with that? And I think that it's anything but harmless. I think it's a very, uh, it's a very dangerous social game to be playing this game of we all have to say who we are because we can't perceive who we are anymore. We are not able to recognize. Um, it, it's it's creating outliers of us all. There are going to be people who are outliers, and that's going to happen in every single category across the board. And as we interact with people who challenge our expectations and our then um, the norms that we come in, in contact with, we're going to have to make a decision of how we're going to handle that. And so that's, I think that that's very different than just all of us being asked to engage in this game of here's my pronoun badge, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it's demoralizing for the individual to have to like, feel like they have to go along with something when they're yeah. actually against it and they feel it's imposed on them. Mm -hmm. I, the question should not be asked. Like, I mean, I can see like, um, I liked how you phrased it, special requests, a mm -hmm. special request. I could see how on an individual basis, uh, you know, people can ask for special requests. Um, if, if somebody, if they feel like they've been misgendered, do you mm -hmm. mind calling me this? Because mm -hmm. again, in the institutional setting, like in the school settings, like we've got Hamilton Wentworth School Board here in, in, in Ontario, they have pronoun practice lessons that they have um, put on their website as um, as resources for teachers to use to bring into the like worksheets like on on pronouns right wow. that's you know that's wrong for on many different levels um, to, to be in some sort of group therapy I'm thinking from a therapy point of view like if you were to host like a group therapy for all women and then you would actually ask them what their pronouns are in that setting when it's like this is supposed to be first of all a women's based group but um, but but then those are people seeking help because they have some sort of emotional issues or some sort of 
of things that they need to work through in a therapeutic uh, environment. And those people are very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the last place that they, they should be asked that their, their speech should be compelled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. I agree. And I do think it's, I think that there's a way to do it that would still respect the, the, the circumstances of people who are finding themselves gender variant and want to make, um, make a special request, as you say, I think that that could be respected in an intro, you know, as we go around the room and everybody wants to introduce themselves, give your name, say a few things about yourself. Uh, and if you like, you can provide your pronouns, you know, something like that, that leaves it open for people to do so if they are worried and we're trying to pave the way for comfort for all involved. And I don't, I, I know a lot of people are going to disagree with that. And I don't, I don't mind being gentle and inclusive of, of you know, the fact is that we have a lot of people who are confused about gender. Are we causing it or is it just happening? I think some of both, we're definitely causing it in children like crazy with, with some of these practices, Mm -hmm. but people just are who they are. And sometimes that's going to be the case. And so I do, I don't see the need to draw such a hard line that you exclude people on that side. I just don't think that it's right to rope everybody into a game in order to cushion that experience for a very few people. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, um, I, again, it comes down to treating people on an individual basis, mm-hmm. um, assessing th- their needs and um, your comfort level too, in terms of your interactions with them on a personal basis. Um, and, you know, like, you know, and trying to, in trying to remember that those people are, are people, they're struggling, but they're struggling just like we all are. Like, I mean, it's not like any one of us has it all together all the time. And um, and that might be their particular um, expression of, of or, or particular issue that they're trying to um, cope with. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of their way of coping with whatever situation that they've been get, given for whatever that is, you know, um, but, um, just to have a little compassion for, for that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, uh, that's very often, um, I've been called, um, um, anti-trans for example, for my gender ideology, critical views. Mm-hmm. And I would say I'm not anti-trans mm-hmm. at all. I, I have a lot of concerns, um, for what's happening to children. And I do not believe that children should be transitioning I don't think that they, you know, I think that they need to be informed consent and they can't reach that until they're 18 years old. Uh, but I do believe that adults should be able to do whatever they want. And um, I, I I, definitely am not anti-trans. Uh, I'm ab- about meeting people where they're at, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. and not imposing my views on other people. Mm-hmm. And I just want the same respect in return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Very well put. And thanks for bringing some more nuance to that discussion, because I, I think that there's a lot, it's such an, it's such an evolving and new thing that we're all experiencing this kind of cultural conversation. So it's really great to have the opportunity to discuss and refine our thoughts on it. Yes. And I will continue to think about this for, I think it's, I think it is a really important issue because mm-hmm. I think it, I, it, it certainly s- stirs up a lot of emotions in, in people but I think we need to um, separate out the emotions from 
reason and, and, and logic in, in, in a lot of this, but also I think that it hits the, it, it really is the crux of the issue in terms of the free speech issue um, and the d d separating what's at stake with this issue. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it is, we don't want to have speech, speech compelled or coerced um, from the state, from the state or institutional level onto the individual ultimately. Mm -hmm. And that individuals should be free to do whatever, say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. um, and that's up, that's up to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well said. And so um, are there any um, resources that you want to point people to where uh, that you would recommend more reading or more research or, or any suggestions that you might have for people that want to get involved or have questions? So I, I, I can't think off the top of my head any specific uh, re resources uh, to, to send people to. I would say that um, if you're a person who's feeling isolated and um, it, whether your work situation or your teacher and you feel like you're walking on eggshells like so many teachers do, um, you have to reach out, try to reach out because you could stay there feeling helpless or you know you can find um, the others. And I will say this, and actually it was uh, Jody, Jody Shaw that told me this. Um, she's like, all you need to do is find one other person. And as soon as you find that one other person, things start to get a lot better. And I will say that that has, um, has uh, borne out, I guess. And that one person for me uh, was this teacher that I met on the counterweight discord server. And, and from there, she was my emotional support. And then I was able to build this huge community. So um, it's just taking baby steps and also um, build your own network of people. Um, ultimately, what I've been doing for the past couple of years is building my own sort of a personal network, which I give other people access to. But you have your own network and every one of us has our own network. And so build that with intention. Build that with intention of making sure that the network, your personal network contains the people that are going to support you and fill you up and, you know, give you energy and inspiration as opposed to the people that are going to suck it from you. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. And you've done a lot of that just in a fairly short space of time. Yes. Well, I, I, I work a lot at it. <laughs> It's a, it's a labor of love, I suppose. Um, but I just, it's just because I have to, I find that the situation that we're in is so dire. It's so serious. Um, and I do see that people are sort of waking up and noticing what's happening, particularly in Canada. You can see how things have gotten so bad um, in terms of our, our, our freedoms being taken away rapidly. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result, you know, people are starting to pay attention to that. And we can't, we have to, we have to fight. We mm -hmm. can't not fight. Are you online anywhere where people can find you or follow you? Um, sure. You can find me on um, Twitter at Catherine Cronus. Okay. Well, I'll include that beneath. And thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. Thanks, Leslie. It was a good conversation. Thanks it for really having was. me. Yeah, thanks. Okay, it was good talking to you again. You too.